Find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Well, hi, listeners. This is Season 4, Episode 15, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. So my name is Rick. I'm author of the recently released book, Spiritual Grit and the Jesus-Centered Life and general editor of the Jesus-Centered Bible, which, uh, by the way, uh, once again, fantastic post-Easter gift now. (laughs) So if you brought a friend to church and they kind of liked your church and they kind of like you, a fantastic way to follow that up would be to just give them a Jesus-Centered Bible and tell them how much it's meant in your life. Make it personal and give them something that could really change change their life, especially for somebody maybe who um, hasn't ever really gotten into reading the Bible. So there you go. We'll, we'll give you some uh, information at the end about how to uh, connect with that. Today is our first episode in a new series we're calling Fully Human. So theologically, we know that Jesus is fully God and fully human. We've been hearing that since, you know, we were young in the church. Jesus is fully God, fully human. And we say that as if we kind of know what that means and exactly what that looks like, and we pretty much don't. It's such a extraordinary statement to say that Jesus is both all God and all human. But we essentially, when we think about that fully God, fully human, we essentially overweight that balancing act to the fully God side. What I mean is that it's easier for us to understand Jesus as God than it is for us to understand Jesus as human. The God side sort of trumps the human side, but Jesus came to reclaim the humanness of us and to model what it looks like to be fully human. That's what we're going to explore for the next five, six weeks, something like that. We'll see how far we want to take it. But it's, it's actually good timing to do this between now and, say, the end of May, because we're heading into the season of life for a lot of families, which is graduation time. Even if you don't have someone in your household who's about to graduate from high school or middle school or college, you probably know someone who does have that happening in their life. And it's kind of an interesting season to think about this big transition. These are all transitions into becoming more fully the person that they're becoming. That when we think about fully human, this progression from middle school, high school, college, into sort of the work world or whatever path you take after college, all of these are progressions toward becoming fully the person you're going to become, if that makes sense. So in a way, uh, planting a series on becoming fully human as we uh, lean into how Jesus modeled that for us is good timing. So, and by the way, we have, if you do know someone in your life who's headed into that graduation season, in addition to the Jesus Center Bible, we also have some fantastic devotional books that were, are great for young people. There is a host of them. There's Destination Life and Growing Spiritual Grit for Teenagers, which is connected to my book. The Jesus-Centered Life 40 Devotions for Teenagers is also connected to the, the book that I mentioned that I've written. And another fantastic little resource called the Simple Truth Bible, which helps young people move through the Bible 
in a creative way. So we have all these things. And you missed one. I did. Which one? Yep. And it's actually one that I just bought for a young teenager this week. If you're wondering who's saying those words, it is, of course, the Becky Nader. It's the Becky Nader. <laughs> I, bought, I bought a copy of Pierced for a oh, good. young lady that is new in my life. And um, as an Easter present, it's a great way for people to experience the New Testament and Jesus's story, but it's, it's re-put into order of the story instead of chapters written by authors. And it doesn't have the verses and titles, so it actually reads more like a novel. And Rick, I think you worked on that project. Oh, that was my baby. Yeah. And it's the other unique thing about it is we gave this way of reading scripture to a bunch of young people and asked them to make notes in the margins and then also asked young people another set to send us their Bible with their already existing margin notes in it. And we transferred all of those into Pierce so that as you're reading, you get the underlining, the the side notes, all the little insights that other uh, young people have had as they read that portion of scripture and they're fascinated. It's a fascinating way to read because it's almost like you're in conversation with a community of people as you read. So that's called peers. So we have all these things that, just so you know, they're designed so that those who are leaning into a new life with Jesus or a deepening life with Jesus have something to be a companion along the path with them. These are all ways to fuel their emerging life. So fully human, fully God. Today, we're going to focus on fully human. So Becky, I thought it would be good to start off by talking a little bit about this whole, the history we have with this phrase, fully God, fully human. So growing up in the church, how did you interpret this fully God, fully human description of the nature of Jesus? Did you ever slow down and pay attention to kind of the tension between those things? Or how did you process that when you were growing up in the church? Well, naturally, I thought it meant that he was like Superman. So, <laughs> but he was like ri- bitten by a radioactive spider, maybe? Maybe? And he got special powers. Yeah, he had special powers. So he wasn't really like a real man who had to face like, you know, being, you know, tempted and got tired. He was like a Superman. And so he could do all of the things he did because of his superpowers. That's so good. And you know, what's funny is uh, I've done a lot of research into how young people, what they believe, how they process the beliefs of the church, what they think about the nature of Jesus and the nature of God. And I know that a very significant proportion, not a majority, but a significant minority proportion of teenagers believe that Jesus must have sinned. And of course, that kind of opts him out of the fully God part of that equation. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that they so see Jesus through this lens of that that he was a man who walked the earth. Therefore, he must have sinned if he was a man walking the earth. So we have this kind of strange relationship with this whole merger of fully God, fully human. Becky, what do you think are some of the limitations? I hope this comes out right. Some of the limitations that we place on Jesus, uh, or actually the limitations we place on fully human when we think about Jesus. So we read and know that he is fully human, but we sometimes, I, I have a suspicion, don't act like he really is fully human. So what are some of the limitations we put on that? 
Well, the first thing I wrote down was actually that he was tempted by sin. And we do have evidence of that. We have the the time when he was basically taken into the desert and tempted by Satan himself. Yeah. Um, so he was tempted by sin. Uh, he also could die. So we know that he could die, that he did die. Um, yes, his body died. Yeah. Yep. He, he also, there's lots of examples throughout the stories where he showed physical limitations like getting tired or needing to rest or needing food um so he had physical limitations he also got frustrated actually kind of got frustrated a lot so i think that's a human trait is he got frustrated um and he experienced pain there was lots of examples where jesus experienced pain sorrow i don't know if he experienced guilt though that would be an emotion that i don't know if jesus struggled with guilt I can't think of an example where he's struggled with feeling guilty. We don't see an obvious example of that when he, uh, when he delayed coming to heal his friend Lazarus and Lazarus died in the interim, he was very upset when he got on the scene where the people were wailing and grieving in front of the tomb and he wept himself and he was very upset. Uh, obviously it's conceivable, I guess you could say that even though he knew he was on mission and he knew he had to do it this way, that he still felt bad about mm -hmm. the, the grief and sadness he had put everyone through and the yeah. pain that he put his friend through. So you could, I guess you could say that. He definitely had time management issues too. Like the time <laughs> when he had to deal with the bleeding woman and stop. And then that girl died yeah. as a result of him not getting there fast enough. He dealt with time limitations and issues just like we do. Yeah, that's true. And when we think about other, uh, another way of looking at limitations on his fully humanness is that we don't often I mean, it's very hard for us to picture Jesus just laughing so hard he's crying or laughing so hard snot comes out of his nose or being whimsical or other human ways that we are as people. It's hard for us to conceive that he's human in those ways. We mostly picture him as this very intense, serious, sort of glowing aura sort of person. If you think about it, it's funny you were talking about that when you were growing up, you saw him as a superhero. That kind of image of Jesus is like kind of like Batman, you know, mm -hmm. just dark, brooding, prone to intensity. Yes, he's heroic, but can you really know a guy like that? I mean, a guy that never seems to crack a smile or tell a joke. That's kind of how we picture Jesus, at least I did growing up. So there are limitations to what we think of when we think of fully human. We don't really believe he's fully human in lots of the ways that we are. So for this series, I thought we'd use this portal of Jesus' definition of love as kind of our flashlight onto how Jesus is fully human. So that Jesus' definition of love is that we love with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength are fully in. So today we're going to talk about an aspect of his fully humanness that I think is very distinct in the things he says and does. The best way I could frame it is, I've called it, don't hold back. So in Jesus's humanness, his fully humanness, he never holds back. He's sort of all in. So what does it mean then to love or to live with our whole soul when you're not holding back? And we can get a picture of what that looks like to be fully human in that way by paying attention to how Jesus lived. But before we dive into that, I thought what would be interesting is for us to talk about how we've experienced this whole issue of don't hold back 
in our life because whether it's ourselves or others around us, this is a little bit of a unnerving thing when we think about what does it mean to not hold back in life? Well, we don't know many people who do that in a balanced way. <laughs> you know, we don't know many people that we think, wow, they're, a, they're the kind of person who doesn't hold back and they're really balanced about it. <laughs> it's usually an extreme or somebody has closed down that part of themselves. They always hold back because there are some natural consequences of not holding back. So if our life reflective of the way Jesus lives is to not hold back, then we're going to have to also examine the corollary to that, which is we're going to have to embrace the natural consequences of not holding back instead of avoiding or fighting those consequences. So one more thing before we dive into our own stories, when we think about who doesn't hold back in their human existence, it's usually children. Children are the ones who sort of jump in with both feet to whatever the heck it is. And we sort of learn as we get older as adults to start holding back because we've learned through painful experience that you get punished sometimes or bad things happen when you don't hold back. So we learned caution and we learn to restrain ourselves. We learn to be sort of keep things at arm's length because painful experience teaches us to do that. So, so Becky, when you told me the other day, you were, you were talking about, as we were talking about this, you said in your work now with women, you've noticed sort of this pattern of women holding back from really pursuing or investing in their dreams and they have a kind of a default caution. Can you talk a little bit about what you've seen and where you think that comes from? So a lot of it is actually driven by guilt. It's feeling like if I pursue this thing that's been put on my heart, then it might cost time from my family. It might cost time from my household responsibilities. It might, like other people in my life, might have to get less of me if I go in with this. And so, and, and that's definitely a balanced tension. And I really like some of the talk that I'm hearing um, out on Instagram from working moms who are pursuing their dreams now instead of waiting until their kids are grown is they're saying, yes, some days I am not fully able to do the perfect mom thing. And some days I'm not able to fully be a perfect boss but most of the time I'm making it all work. But there are days where it's like a balance and I have to give myself some grace, right? This is part of like having grace is that I can't do anything, but also that they feel like their kids are watching them live the life that they want their kids to live. And so they feel like they're modeling what that is. But a lot of times there's a lot of guilt associated with if I do this, that it's really for me. And that has been kind of interesting to me because a woman who is fully living out her purpose in life is more attractive to the people around her. She's more engaged with her family. She's, she's more fully alive. And so she's actually, when she's giving to her purpose, she's actually giving to everything else as well by them seeing her action in her life and her modeling the way that that works and modeling that there is balance. Cause when you give everything to one thing, you're not balancing anything. Right. And so yeah. 
there's definitely a tension. And I think that what's interesting is instead of saying, well, there's tension, so we can't do any of it. They're saying there's tension. And so every day I have to walk. And I think when, when you do do that, you're risking, you're taking a risk, you're being vulnerable, you're having to be more fully known by the people around you because you're not always keeping it all together. And you might fail, like there's a possibility of failure, but then there's also this thing where you need extra strength. And when you need extra strength, you put yourself in a position where you have to rely on your father. Like you have to rely on the Holy spirit. You have to rely on Jesus to come in and fill what isn't left there. It's not possible without it. And it, and I think that's a position that Jesus likes to see us get put in is he likes to see us get put in places where we're in dependence where we have to say, there's no way I can do all of this. What's interesting about the tension you're describing too, is that what is the feeling of being on the precipice of going, of not holding back or holding back? What is, what are the emotions at work? What are the calculations that happen in microseconds inside of us as we are teetering on that edge? And I think I am in very often in places where I know that to live out who I am, I have to not hold back. And what happens in those circumstances is when you dive in and go all in, you are now no longer on the sidelines. You're not a critic, you're a player. Yep. Uh, and when you are on the playing field, you're surrounded by a stadium full of critics who are watching you play. And they're, and in the case of like football, for instance, uh, let's let's take the NFL, it's broadcast and they can slow down your motion. They can watch exactly whether you touched the guy before you were supposed to, when the ball got there, they can slow it all down to critique your play. Um, but they are themselves not players. And the experience is vastly different. I, I sometimes wonder if players secretly harbor tremendous resentment as part of what their, their quote unquote job is that they get, uh, as long as they're in that career, they get vocal critics are with the package there. And the reason we tend to hold back sometimes is because of those critics, because we've experienced the pain of our flaws, our weaknesses, the thing that we went all in with didn't quite work out so well. Um, so when you think about yourself, Becky, you've got so many things that in order for you to generate the things that you're doing in your life right now, you can't really hold back, but there's lots of cost on the mm -hmm. other side of that. So can you describe a little bit the tension that's in you around this? I think that when you decide to live like this, you, <laughs> you wake up every day and have to choose whether or not you're going to be afraid of what you're doing, or if you're just going to say, okay, What's the first thing I have to do and then go do it. And then the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And sometimes it feels like if I think about everything that's going on, it would consume me. And so I choose to just say, okay, I have to get three things done in the next hour. What are they? And then I get those three things done. And then I take the next hour and I say, okay, what are the next three things I have to get done? And then, I mean, I was just before this episode, I was just reviewing my to-do list from this week that I made on Sunday. And I've gotten three out of seven things done <laughs> that were major. <laughs> three and major things. So I, but I also have a tendency to say I can get more done than I'm going to. And so I then have to say, okay, 
what are the three things I have to get done tomorrow? And then the rest has to get moved. And I'll have to figure out how to relay that information to people. It's not getting done this week. It's going to yeah. get done next week. And so if I adopted a perfection mentality in everything I did, then I wouldn't get everything done. I have to have a good, better, and best. And sometimes you get good and sometimes you get better and sometimes you get best. And what's, it's an important distinction here to, to mark right now that when we talk about not holding back, we're not, we can't possibly be talking about perfection because if you put out in front of yourself, I will unleash myself. I won't hold back as soon as I can do it perfectly. Well, then you'll never do anything. So when we're talking about not holding back, we're also saying, recognizing I'm not going to hold back, but I recognize I'm not going to do it perfectly. So this is going to be painful. There's no way around it. It's going to be painful. I thought I'd tell a little story um, that happened this in the last week before we transitioned into Jesus here. I have one of the teenagers in my small group whose name is Emma, same as my daughter's name. I, she came in a couple weeks ago to the small group, and she looked a little, a little sad, and she doesn't usually. So I asked her, hey, what's going on? And she said she had been at the state championship drumline competition uh, on that weekend where she's part of a drumline where they do improvisational rhythmic percussion. And you can compete at a state level for this. And her team is really good from her school, but they went to the state competition and they didn't do nearly as well as she thought they would. And so she was still struggling with this about three days after the competition. And she said something like this to me. She said, the other people on my team aren't struggling like I am right now. And she didn't ask me, but I jumped in and I said, you know, Emma, I think that's because you're an all-in person. You go all-in in your relationship with Jesus. You go all-in in every area of your life. And you go all-in with the drumline team. So people who go all-in have a different experience of failure, mistake, disappointment. They feel it more deeply. And I was trying to encourage her and said, this is the way to live, Emma. It is the way to live. Don't let this teach you or even those around you teach you that to avoid feeling the grief that you feel right now, you should not go in so much at the front end. You should regulate yourself more. I told her a little story of when I was super, I'd been a supervisor for about 10 years here at group and my way of supervising the people that I was leading was when it came time for their annual performance review, I did the normal things that you do, but I also always wrote about a page of notes about that person of what I saw in them, what I loved about them, the treasure that I saw in them, the things that I thought they could grow in. And it was very, I guess you could call it very detailed, very personal. And of course, our HR department would get copies of everything I gave to the person and so about 10 years in, I got called into HR and they asked me, they, they wanted to ask me whether I thought this was a good thing that I was doing because they were concerned that if I had to do some kind of disciplinary process with someone or even fire someone, I wouldn't be able to do it because I was, I was sort of all in in my uh, personal influence in their life. They were worried I wouldn't be able to separate that out from my sort of business duty, I guess you could call it. And I looked at them and I said, well, last year I fired my best friend here at work. So that was incredibly painful for me. But if you're asking me to back away from the impact that I would like to have in people's lives, I can't do that. All I really need to do is come to terms with embracing the grief that is going to cause me sometimes. And 
I don't want to be afraid of that grief. I don't want to pay off that grief by backing away from the impact that I would like to have in people's lives. And they just kind of looked at me like, okay, <laughs> all right, you go then. But I understood why they were nervous. But I told this story to Emma to say, Emma, please don't back off yeah. of being all in because it's such a struggle on the other side of this. And so I think that's a good bridge into, into Jesus. When I was talking to Emma, I was really trying to encourage her to be unmodulated or unregulated in that sense. And I think that's a pretty fair description of the way people experience Jesus as unmodulated. He, he, didn't, he wasn't cautious when they wanted him to be cautious. He didn't do, he didn't react the way that, that they wanted him to react. So he said and did things that did not account for the caution that we're supposed to develop as adults. So let's, let's take a look at some examples. We're just going to kind of skip through the first two chapters of the Gospel of John, and we're going to look for examples of Jesus being fully human. And these examples I think we're going to uh, ram into here are not what you would normally think of a person being fully human. It's because we don't slow down and pay very good attention to Jesus. So we're going to slow down, look for him behaving in a fully human way by not holding back. And we're going to stop every time we see one of those examples in John chapter one and chapter two. And the point of this is just to, to pick a couple of chapters almost at random to see if we can see this theme showing up in his life. And, and I believe what we're going to see is how pervasive this example of living this way, not holding back, really is with Jesus. So the first one um, in John chapter 1 that I think we ram into here is in verses 38 and 39. So the first portion of John chapter 1 is kind of a, a, a poetic setup to Jesus appearing on the scene. So when you get to 38 and 39, we have John the Baptist um, and how the role that John the Baptist played early on in Jesus' ministry, we have uh, some disciples of John the Baptist sort of being directed by their, by their leader to go pay attention to Jesus. Go find out about this guy because he's the Messiah. So in verse 38 and 39, let me just read to you this little portion. Uh, Jesus looked around and saw them following. And that, the them here is two of John's disciples. So Jesus looked around and saw them following. And he said, what do you want? And they replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus said, come and see. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying. And they remained with him the rest of the day. So, so John the Baptist's disciples ask him a rational question. Where are you staying? And a normal person would say, I'm staying at so-and-so's house. And here's where it is. Jesus instead doesn't respond that way. He says, why don't you come and see where I live, where I'm staying right now? So if you slow down and pay attention to what he's doing here, I would never do what Jesus just did with people I had just met. I would say, I'm staying here. Instead, he says, why don't you come, come to where I'm staying and spend the rest of the day with me? So when we think about this, Becky, if you think about yourself, your own patterns of meeting new people, and I'm saying what Jesus is doing here is behaving fully human, how would you, how do you process or define what fully human means in this case, when he's essentially saying, come on over to my house? 
in this situation, what he's, when we're fully all in, we aren't just living life with Jesus on our own. We're inviting other people into it. And, and it, we're not inviting people, you know, it's Easter. So I went to church, you know, went to church last weekend, the last two or three weeks, every weekend, they've been like encouraging us to invite people to come to church with us that don't go to church and they have these cards that they want us to give people. And I'm really action oriented and I really thought about it. And I, I was just like, I don't think that that is how I want to invite the people that I'm starting to interact in this brand new community into a life with Jesus. I want to invite them instead into my own life more. Um, and I want them to experience Jesus by living life with me. And I think that that's what Jesus does. He takes, he takes us to hit into his life. And I think that when we are fully in with Jesus, we're inviting people into our lives more deeply. We're inviting them into experiencing, um, us. And I, I like to, especially I was working in Christian publishing for the last five years. So I worked with Christians every day, all day, lots and lots of Christians loving Jesus, <laughs> reading their Bibles. Now I am working with people who are all over the place, all over the map. And you know what I still love to do now? I like to talk about my relationship with Jesus in front of them the same way I do in, in front of Rick Lawrence. Because what, when I do that and I, and I just, I'm talking about business, I'm in a meeting with a bunch of business women and I talk about how Jesus is, is teaching me something right now. I see them perk up because people don't do that. Right. And so what I'm doing is and I'm you, not trying to impress do, them. <laughs> I'm just trying to be myself. You do it in a normalized way. In a you normal make it way. a normal part of conversation. Like the you would normal. talk about. It's like, we're talking about business planning and I'm talking about Jesus too. And, and I'll say, I, I'll just say things like, you know, I, I worked on my business plan last week and I just really put it to prayer. I've been putting it into prayer and here's what Jesus has been telling me about it. And here's where I think it, that he's showing me to make some changes. And they're just like, okay. <laughs> All righty. It's, so, it, it's so funny that you mentioned this too, because with my own kids, there, there's a kind of a stigma around this that, oh, I don't want to say that because that's like evangelizing then. And evangelizing, oh, I don't know. That that always seems so weird. It always seems so weird. So my, my kids have often said, you know, that just sounds too weird to do. And what I say to them is, if it's normal for me, mm -hmm. then it needs to be normal in my conversation. If I say normal things to other people about other aspects of my life, then when I get to this point, I do have to make an internal decision that says, well, this is normal too. So if this is normal too, then I'm just going to treat it as normal instead of thinking inside, oh, now I'm going into evangelism mode. Yeah. Now, now I need to say this the right way. Now, how did I remember to say it? No, you don't do that with any th other thing in your life. You just blurt out what is normal for you. And I really love that example, Becky, that that is a, a really profound form of invitation because you're communicating to the people you're talking to, hey, this is normal. If you're it's normal for me. It's normal I for me to invite Jesus into my planning. And so why shouldn't I just say that? You know, there's other people in the group that like are into crystals and stuff and they talk about their crystals. So I talk about Jesus. <laughs> there you go. And the other thing I think about when we think about it's fully human to invite in as Jesus is here, what you're really doing is inviting people in. And that means you're inviting mess 
and chaos into your life. There was a, a while back we had a, a student whose dad wanted him to come visit our group and that student wasn't really connected to any of the existing teenagers in our group and they were kind of some of the some of them are a little worried about this guy coming to visit our group because he wasn't connected to any of them so they were kind of expressing this concern and worry and and so my wife asked me are you concerned that this guy is coming to our group to visit and i said no no in fact even if i was i would say no I'm not concerned because we want our fundamental posture to be invitation. And that means that, well, what if he does come? What if he's disruptive? What if the worst case scenario happens? What if he really upsets people in the group when he comes? Would I still be okay with inviting him into the group? And I'd say, yeah, we'll deal with the mess that comes when it comes. But to not invite him at the front end is to not live with a, the same attitude that Jesus lived with. When he invited these people to come be with him in his home, he wasn't like, oh, I hope they don't screw up my afternoon. <laughs> he was willing to deal with whatever happened after he invited them in. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of what it means to not hold back in life, is to not preempt something just because you suspect it might be adding chaos or confusion or mess into your life with people. Of course, people are messy. And when we invite, that means we're going to risk more mess in our lives. And are we okay with that? Can we come to peace with the mess that that is? I think about sometimes your your journey, Becky, to the West Coast or almost to the West Coast, all of the journey that you met along the way, the people, the strangers you met, and you told stories of people uh, reaching out to you, connecting with you just when you needed it. You needed invitation along the way. If people had been perpetually cautious with you all the time, you would have had no connections whatsoever. So they took risk. Yep. Yeah. So let's uh, let's move to the next one, verses 41 and 42. Let's see what we got here. Oh, this is right. At, so Jesus invites uh, these two guys to come visit him. And Andrew was one of the people who heard what John the Baptist said about Jesus. So Andrew goes to find his brother, Simon. He wants to tell him, you know, we've found the Messiah. So when Andrew says to his brother, Simon, we've found Jesus, then Andrew brings Simon to meet Jesus. And here's what it says. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, your name is Simon, son of John, but you'll be called Cephas, which means Peter. (laughs) If you slow down and think about this, This is the first time Jesus has set eyes in this account on Simon. And he he walks in, he meets Jesus. Jesus looks him in the face. It says he looks intently at him. And then he renames him. (laughs) He says, actually, your name is Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. Can you imagine what, what Simon must have felt meeting this guy for the first time The guy looks at him in this intent way and then says, you know what? Your real name is Cephas, and that's what you're going to go by now. What a crazy, crazy thing. But I I find in this something very profound. Jesus, investing in his full humanness, looked at Peter and spoke out identity to Peter. He said what he thought right off the bat about what he thought Peter was, who he was, and then he put an exclamation point on the end of it by saying, in fact, 
um, I'm going to give you a name that represents what I see in you. What an extraordinary thing to do. And when you think about this, Becky, about people in your life that you know who have spoken identity to you, we've talked in the past mm -hmm. episodes about when people do that in a negative cutting way, but we have also talked about when it's a life-giving, undergirding way. And it's a risk to do this. It's a risk to relate to people in a way that calls out their identity, that notices things about people and embraces and delights in them. We typically don't do it because we're overcautious about it. Why do you think we're overcautious about doing that with people? Well, I don't know why we're overcautious. I, I, maybe it's because we are afraid that it will sound like we're puffing them up. But I, when we, when you look at someone and you see them fully, and you see that they either don't see what's so great about them, or or they think that that great thing is negative. Um, and you, you call it out and you just say like, wow, like God made, th made that in you. Like God made that, like, that is so incredible about you. Like, what if you were more of that? <laughs> you know, what if you were that for other people? And I think a lot of times, even the greatest parts of us just get shut down. They get negative talk. They get all kinds of maybe passive comments about it. And, you know, th they, they say that, our weaknesses are usually our strengths exaggerated. And so it is about balancing tension. But sometimes when we exaggerate our strengths and then someone says that's bad, then we think the strength part is bad too. And, and I think that's something that I've seen is really dangerous in my life and dangerous in other people's life is when we do that in such a way where we, we end up stripping the identity out of the good thing. We're not doing them a favor. And we're really like, God's like, I don't like that. Like, I love this next thing is the truth about being fully all in with Jesus is that I'm fully all in with the way he made me. I'm fully all in saying, okay, God, you made me a planner. Like that's part of my DNA. Like I don't even have to think about it. A lot of people have to create all these systems and, and they struggle with it. I just, naturally go do it and what if I did it in a really good way and I, I used it to help other people in a good way that's Becky fully unleashed yeah um, I love that I love that so much and you know you think about when Jesus said don't cast your pearls before swine and we've talked about this often on the podcast don't cast your pearls before swine it doesn't it doesn't mean literally pigs it means don't give what is a treasure inside mm -hmm. you to those who cannot understand it as treasure they have no conception of the treasure, so don't put it out there to them. But the converse is also true. He's not saying, don't cast your pearls before the world's greatest pearl experts. He's not saying that. He's saying, actually, cast your pearls in front of the world's greatest pearl experts because yep. they'll see how beautiful those pearls are. So what would it look like for us living fully human as Jesus did to be the world's greatest pearl experts? around the people that we're around mm -hmm. so that when they show us their treasure, we know exactly what that treasure is and we value it and respond to it as the treasure that it is. What happens when you do that, when you live fully human in this way, is people come alive. They start to believe that it might be okay to live out of those pearls, to show people their treasure. And the world needs more treasure. <laughs> It doesn't need more people holding back, keeping their pearls in their pocket. The world needs people scattering their pearls out there. So that necessitates more pearl experts 
wandering around in community, recognizing what's being thrown out there in front of them. So to be fully human, I think in this, in what Jesus is modeling here is to be fully human means to speak truth to identity and to not be shy about it. It doesn't mean speaking truth to identity in a way that you just slice and dice, you diminish, you mute, you cut down. No, you're looking for the pearls. So that's exactly what he did with Simon. The last one in the, in the first chapter of John that I saw was in verses 45 through 50. So let me just read that real quick. Philip was one of the early disciples and he was called by Jesus to follow him. And so he was also from Bethsaida, which was Andrew and Simon's hometown. So Philip went back to his hometown to look for his friend, Nathaniel. And he told Nathaniel, we have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, exclaimed Nathaniel. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, come and see yourself, Philip replied. And as they approached, Jesus said, now here's a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. Well, how do you know about me? Nathaniel asked. Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathaniel exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus asked him, do you believe this just because I told you I'd seen you under the fig tree? You'll see greater things than this. So I love this little interchange with Nathaniel, mostly because Jesus pokes at him right away. He's being, I don't know if it's sarcastic is too strong here, but he's poking at, at a dynamic that exists within Nathaniel when he says, here's a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. He's saying this with a smile on his face, kind of a snarky little smile. Nathaniel reacts to this, like, uh, almost like, do you know me? What are you talking about? How, you're, you seem overpersonal right now. How do you even know to poke at me in this way? I love that Jesus' first interaction with Nathaniel is not only, I'm going to poke at you a little bit, but then he promises Nathaniel, you think this was a big deal. Wait till you see the big deals that you're about to, to discover when you start to follow me. Those will really be big deals. So you better, you better strap it on, buddy. This is a small potatoes that you've experienced here. So when you think about this interaction, Becky, what do you see in Jesus that is extraordinary, unusual, different from the normal way that a person might interact with someone in this situation? What do you pick out? Well, we actually just recently did this story, I think, maybe like yeah. a month ago or something. But, yeah, not too long ago. Um, but under a different context. And I think in this context, he's like, when we're fully all in, when we're fully engaged, we're expecting big things, not small things. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the, the most self-limiting things that I've had to deal with personally and that I've been learning about working with these women is when we are, have self-limiting mindsets, then we'll just follow that. Like if we expect less, we'll get less. Jesus was constantly saying like, we're going to do big things together. Like we're going to do big things together. Um, and so he was a cheerleader of that mindset. Like we can do big things together and big things doesn't have to be the same way the world thinks about it. It he thinks differently about that word big, but big is great. It's about you being fully engaged and you fully experiencing life the way he, ex he expected you to do it, fully experiencing him the way that he expected you to do it, fully experiencing the relationships in your life the way that he expected you to. 
it doesn't mean that you're going to go be a millionaire. That's not his big things. Aren't the same as our world's big things, but his big things are, are greatness in your life. He wants to have you to have a life that you love and he wants you to be fully engaged in that. And it, it's all about going all in for yourself and all in for him. And it's part of just believing that he created a great identity in you and he wants you to live that out. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I'm just thinking about a, a David Brooks column that he wrote in the, the New York Times recently. The title of this article, and we'll have Julia link to it, is called Five Lies Our Culture Tells. The, the tagline is the cultural roots of our political problems. So I really love David Brooks. He's a fascinating person. He kind of comes sort of alongside the, the Christian life. I, he, he's not really a proponent of the Christian life, but he comes like a companion onto it in the, in the columns that he writes. So he's, he's writing about five lies that we believe in our culture that are really uh, are becoming hurdles for young people and others in our culture. And one of them is, I find this fascinating, it's life is an individual journey. Let me just read a little something of what he says here. Life is an individual journey. He's saying, this is a lie that books like Dr. Seuss's Oh, the Places You'll Go tell. In adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences, and whoever has the most experiences wins. This lie encourages people to believe freedom is the absence of restraint. Be unattached. Stay on the move. Keep your options open. In reality, the people who live best tie themselves down. They don't ask, what cool thing can I do next? They ask, what's my responsibility here? They respond to some problem or get called out of themselves by a deep love. I just love that last part. They respond out of deep love. And he's saying that this idea that life is about racking up more and more experiences, he's, that's not significance in life. That's not impact in life. If we want to move into big things and have big impact in our life, he's saying, well, what's my responsibility here? <laughs> what can I invest in? Who can I invest in? Yes. Uh, bigness comes when we go all in with the, the people that are around us. And sometimes that means not, you know, jetting off to have the next cool experience. It means what can I invest in right here? And so here Jesus is saying to Nathaniel, you're about to go on a ride, buddy. <laughs> you hook yourself up with me and big things are going to happen in your life because I'm going to fully invest in you. So the next one is in chapter two of John. We're just going to do two, a couple of quick things in chapter two of John where again, we're looking for Jesus behaving in a fully human way. So chapter two verses one through 11, this is where Jesus's mother asks Jesus to help her out at the wedding of Cana because the bride and groom have not ordered enough wine and they're about to run out. And Jesus is like, well, uh, what do you want me to do about it? I can't go out and buy more wine. And uh, his mother knows that he is capable of doing something extraordinary here. And that's essentially what she's asking him to do. And he's saying, you know, it's not my problem. My time hasn't come yet, but her, his mother persists. And she just basically tells the servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. Then Jesus sees these six stone water jars standing nearby. They're just for washing, ceremonial washing. But he, he tells the servants to fill the jars with water. And after the jars are filled, they're supposed to dip a dipper in there and go give it 
to the master ceremonies to taste. And so they go do this, and the master ceremonies is like, hey, you're not supposed to save the good wine to the last. Where did you get this wine? The whole thing is like shot through with playfulness. I find this delightful that this is the first miracle that Jesus performs because it's a, it's a non-necessary miracle. If you compare it to people who are dead and need to be raised from the dead or people who need to be healed of something or uh, uh, on a hillside when you turn bread and uh, a few loaves and fish into a feast for 10,000 people. These are extraordinary, like over-the-top things. And this is a small, playful, delightful thing he does at the very beginning of his ministry. When you think about being fully human in this scenario, Becky, how do you see Jesus being fully human in this encounter? It was a party. And they were <laughs> done having fun. And <laughs> That's so good. It, right? It's a party. Like he, he was it's... so fully human in this story. He was so fully human because, you know, I think when we think about like when we say like, oh, Jesus is your friend. Like what, you, what we think about when we say that is like, well, he's your friend because he really cares about your heart. And when you're going through a hard thing, you can talk to him and you can go to him and you can ask him for help. But he also is your friend that you like to go to parties with. Like <laughs> he's the guy that you would have a great time with. Like you would invite him on vacation because he's your friend. You want to spend time with him. He is the person that you enjoy laughing with and i don't think that we think enough about jesus like this like he is fully human because he's fully fun he's fun he's he's delightful to be with is another way of saying it in in this little encounter i see his playfulness his mischievousness i can't say that word he was mischievous he was uh doing something funny like he's standing there what he's for sure watching as the servant brings the the ladle to the master of ceremonies. He's for sure watching what the guy does when he takes the first sip. And he's delighting in the little trick he's just played. There's something really enjoyable about uh, how Jesus is with people. That's why so many people wanted to be with him. And we forget sometimes that that delight, that ease at a party, that ability to laugh and play a joke on someone is part of the human experience. And also, the other little thing that's behind this is he's comfortable exercising his power. Like you said before, Becky, when you're talking with friends and you naturally talk about Jesus or prayer or something you're doing in your life that some people might refrain from doing, Jesus never refrains from using his power. He normalizes that also, that there's a, that if someone needs to be healed, he'll do it <laughs> in the moment. And if that wine needs to be changed from water, the water needs to be turned into wine, he'll do it. And also in chapter two, maybe we'll do one more example here. Jesus is uh, clearing the temple in verses 13 through 17. So if you look in uh, chapter two, verses 13 through 17, it's at the Passover. Jesus enters the temple. There's people selling cattle and sheep and doves for sacrifice. They're exchanging foreign money. And so he makes a whip and he drives people out of the, uh, the temple and he's super upset. He, he says, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. And then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scripture. Passion for God's house will consume him. Sometimes we interpret this story as Jesus just lost his temper. But actually, to live fully human means to express your passion, to not hold back on your passion. And 
I have to say, the thing that first drew me to my wife, Bev, who is half Irish, half Italian, is that she was the first person I'd ever met in my life who, when I talked to her or when I told her something that was gone in my life, she was emotionally invested in mm -hmm. what I was saying. She responded with passion. It was so stark that I was caught off guard for the first bit of time that I was getting to know her. I didn't know how to react to her because I'd never met anybody who reacted in a passionate way to either the high or the low that I was sharing. She was fully invested, fully passionate, and I was deeply drawn to this from the very beginning because I grew up in a household that was sort of flat emotionally. And all of a sudden I met somebody who was fully engaged with their passion in the everyday things of my life. I have to say that I, the, I believe that the, the reason why Jesus brought the two of us together was in some respects to bring healing to me. So the healing came from uh, having a spouse who actually responds with passion to the things she hears and sees in me. It helped me to come alive out of this place of flat emotion where I had been raised as a kid. So when you think about the, the role of passion in being fully human, Becky, what do, you what do you connect with with that? I think that when you are fully engaged and you're fully living out your purpose, that it means that you're going to fight for people when they need someone to fight for them. And you're going to be a defender. And that's, he was defending his passion. And in this case, he was defending his father, like in his father's house. But I think also you're going to defend other people. When someone is being torn down, you're going to be the kind of person that goes and stands by their side to fight with them instead of just standing back and being like, oh, I'm not going to get involved in this or I'm not, you know, and, and, and I think sometimes that means like when someone's going through a tumultuous time in their life and it would be easy to just be like, well, I'm sorry, I'll, yeah, good luck with that. Like that you actually get in with them and you, you help them fight the battle and you help them figure it out and move through the hard parts of their life. And every one of us is going to need that at some point. And so you're a, you're a fierce friend. <laughs> you're a fierce person for people and for their identity and for their life. You get all in with whatever it is that, that if you're, if you're a friend, you're all in with them. So good. And, you know, just to close this off at the very end of chapter two, there's this strange thing where um, after he does all these miraculous signs in Jerusalem, it says that many people began to trust in him. But then it says, but Jesus didn't trust them because he knew all about people. No one needed to tell him about human nature for he knew what was in each person's heart. And I just chewed on that some this morning. And I thought, if he's behaving fully human here, part of being fully human is valuing your treasure. He's saying, I, these people are saying they trust me, but I know people, and I'm not just going to open myself to this right now. I'm on a journey here. Some of these same people who are all gaga about me right now are going to turn on me later. Mm. So I'm going to value my own treasure. I'm going to discern who I'm open to. He doesn't let other people give him the cue for when it's okay to be open. He decides himself when it's okay to be open. So he, he doesn't simply let them trigger that in him. So to be fully human means that you're in charge of yourself. You're in charge of your own treasure as well. And you're not treating it haphazardly. So if you discern, this is not a good situation for me to be fully trusting, 
then it's to be fully human to guard your treasure in that moment. That's what I think Jesus is modeling for us here. So this whole idea of fully human, don't hold back, it's fully human to go all in. It's the reason why we've named our private Facebook community the pigs, <laughs> because uh, it comes from a chapter in my book, The Jesus-Centered Life, called Living the Pig's Life. And it essentially means, as we've talked about on the podcast before, if you're thinking about breakfast, the chicken gives something for the breakfast, an egg, but the pig gives everything. And the pig goes all in for breakfast. <laughs> so that's why we've named our Facebook community the pigs, because it's for people that, that may not already consider themselves to be people that are going all in, but they want to be. They want to be the kind of person that goes all in. So if you're not going to hold back in your life, then living the fully human life that Jesus is modeling, you're going to have to learn how to grieve and lament. I said that at the top of the podcast. If you're going to do these things, to live the way Jesus lives, you're going to have to learn how to grieve and lament. Becky, maybe uh, what, what pops into your head when you think about this, the capacity that you have to have to be able to grieve and to lament, how does that fit for you in a life that is not holding back? I think that when you know who Jesus is, you know that he cares about every single thing that you think in your head. <laughs> he is the kind of friend that you can tell that you can actually tell anything to, and he already knows it, but he loves it when you tell it to him anyways, especially when it's a lament. I think he, he treasures that moment because he knows how deeply vulnerable it is. And there's, I've definitely had my seasons of lamenting in the last year. Sometimes we lament for things that are taken from us. And sometimes we lament for failures that we have. And sometimes we lament for when we just don't feel like he's coming through on something that you thought he was going to, but he cares about it all. And when you're fully in with Jesus, you know that you just know that he cares about you so much that there's nothing that you can tell him that he doesn't want to hear. This is Jesus' promise to those who lament. It's, it's really one of the first things he said in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. To experience the comfort of Jesus is his promise in the midst of our grief and lament. He's saying, go all in. Be fully human. Live out your passion. And when you do, you're going to grieve and lament. And my promise to you is to inhabit your grief with comfort. You get to experience the sweetness of my comfort in the midst of that. And I want that for you. So don't let grief or the possibility of it keep you from not holding back. The other aspect of not holding back is it simply means that we're living out our calling as the body of Christ. It means that we are, Jesus has so constructed this that he has said, I'm going to live my life through you. And every one of you is a part of my body. And I need every part of my body to be as fully alive as possible in order for my body to accomplish the kingdom of God in, on earth. I need every part of my body fully awake, fully alive so that my body's operating the way it's supposed to. So when we hold back, we're diminishing or numbing one part of the body of Christ, and he needs all of that fully alive. The last thing I think about with this, and this is uh, something to, to keep in mind um, when you are uh, sort of as a, a filter for living life, Jesus said, let your yes be yes 
and your no be no. And what he was really saying there is don't be halfway. If you're going to say yes, go. If go you're do say it. No, yeah. If you're going to say no, then set a boundary. Don't do it. But either way, don't be halfway. And on another occasion, he, he says in Revelation that either be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. I'm going to spit that out of my mouth. He's really saying don't hold back. If you're going to go, go. If you're not going to go, then don't go. Don't waffle about it. That's living life when it's not halfway. So any last thoughts here, Becky, about what it means to not hold back in, in the context of Jesus modeling what it is to be fully human? Anything that, any stray thought you have before we close off here? I would just say I spent too many years not going all in. And so if today is the day you're listening to this, then do it. It is so scary. It, that fear, I think, is so normal. And what I've learned is that that fear is actually necessary to push through because once you get through it, it's like, okay, here we go. Um, when you see Jesus start to show up, but he wants, he kind of wants you to be afraid to do it. It's part of trust. It's part of faith. People are still always joining the pigs page. We had someone last week who was like, hi, I'm just brand new here. I don't know if this group is active. And they found out, yes, it is active. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. And we're active in a way that we want to support and encourage our mutual all-in-ness. We long for each other to be all-in people, to be pigs, not chickens, to not hold back. So if you want to join the, the pigs, our, our little community of all-in, don't-hold-back people, uh, you can find a link to that on our podcast page, which is at paintridiculousattentiontojesus.com. You're just going to look in our podcast section. You're, you're looking for season four, episode 15. And while you're there, you'll see other links there to the grad gifts I talked to you about before. Check those out, please. And you can also go to lifetree.com for links or group.com. You just check out our Jesus-centered line of resources if you want to go there. This is, again, paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. You can subscribe to us on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you get your podcasts. And in a couple of weeks, the Becky Nader will be back in again. <laughs>